If you're a mainstream status quo kind of person, please don't listen to this. This is only going to make you mad at me, but here we go. (laughs) Also, major trigger warning, I am going to casually discuss some really traumatic stuff because I've dealt with it already, but this might be hard for some people to listen to, so if you are in a really sensitive place right now, just skip this episode. These other diagnoses were based almost entirely on the opinions and beliefs of leaders and interest groups in the psychiatric profession. Why do we have about 10 personality disorders? Because psychoanalysts believe in those ideas. Were those ideas tested with observational studies and then revised based on confirmations and refutations of their content? Not before 1980 and hardly since. The statements I make on this podcast are for educational purposes only. My statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. Therefore, the statements I make are not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. All of the information I share is simply for informational purposes only. You should always consult with a licensed healthcare professional before you start taking a new vitamin, supplement, medicinal herb, or conventional medication. You should also get professional advice before you start a new exercise program or if you suspect that you might have a health problem. Knowledge is power. I hope you use the information I share with you to seek the best care for yourself and the people you love. Thank you for listening. In other episodes, I have mentioned, I think I might have only mentioned it in one episode, that my mother's boyfriend raped me repeatedly when I was between the ages of like 11 or 12, and then it stopped when I was 15 because I stood up to him and I told him to leave me alone, and then he did, and then I felt like an idiot, like I should have stood up for myself much earlier, but I was a kid, so whatever. But the thing about that is when I told the first time, when it happened, my mother looked at it like I was damaged and I needed help. So she forced me to go into therapy, but it was a certain kind of therapy. It was psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis, I think, serves some purposes. I don't know. Honestly, I'm not going to speak negatively of it because it was nice to have somebody to talk to. I didn't talk about my sexual abuse, but it was nice to have somebody to just talk to. If I was just a person on the outside looking in, I would say, what's the point of getting therapy for the child if you don't remove the abuser from the home, right? Okay, so there's that. But anyway, I've been getting into some like discussions with people online and they're like mad at me because I keep referring to psychiatry as pseudoscience. And my reason is I had questioned the science of psychiatry in the past because I understand like psychiatrists generally prescribe medication where psychologists and psychoanalysts and those kinds of people, they basically do more like talk therapy. And I questioned the scientific basis of these drugs they were prescribing. And then as an adult, I started to question the diagnoses because I'm like, as a kid, I noticed that a lot of people were being prescribed ADHD drugs like Ritalin and I don't know what the other ones are. My brother was on Ritalin for a while, but it seemed like everybody had ADHD or everybody 
has anxiety and depression. Like all it takes is going to see one of these doctors and there is like a 99% chance that they're going to tell you that you have some kind of anxiety disorder or some kind of depressive disorder. And that's fine because people go through stuff. You know, if you experience a traumatic event or whatever, you would expect to be a little down or a little anxious afterwards. But why do they try to make it seem like now you have this lifelong incurable situation that is going to need all sorts of profitable medications to treat and not that you would be treating these situations for a certain amount of time until they're cured. They basically classify them as incurable and now you're on this medication forever and we know that there's no real money in curing, right? There's money in treating people and that's why they try to say that everyone has some kind of generalized anxiety or some kind of major depressive disorder that needs to be treated. And then we can get into the fact that this year I started reading papers about how this whole SSRI thing, you know, they say, oh, if you're depressed, it's because you have a chemical imbalance, some kind of serotonin thing, and you need this serotonin reuptake inhibitor to balance out your brain chemistry. And that has all been proven to be false. They're not saying that the antidepressants don't work, the SSRIs specifically, but they're saying that there really is no scientific basis for this whole serotonin reuptake bullshit. And I'm like, hmm, interesting. Okay, so I said all that to say, I personally believe psychiatry is mostly pseudoscience. We know that there are people who are completely out of it, completely like delusional and suffering from like maybe like schizophrenia. They hear voices. They might have all types of hallucinations, auditory, visual, physical. You know, they might feel things that aren't really there, see things that aren't really there, hear things that aren't really there. The interesting thing is that sometimes people who don't have some real serious issue, schizophrenia, whatever, they might have those kinds of symptoms temporarily, but a lot of times they get thrown into the same category as somebody who's just suffering from a serious brain issue. Now, if you're familiar with psychiatry at all, you may have heard of the DSM, and at this point we're on DSM-5 because they keep having to like change it, update it, and remove the nonsense and add new nonsense. And you would think that at this point in like the 21st century, it would all be science-based because we all understand the scientific method. We know how to distinguish fact from opinion, but it seems like the DSM is constantly filled with nonsense opinions. I want to share this article or some parts of it from Psychiatric Times. The title of it is why DSM-3, 4, and 5 are unscientific, and it's from October 14th, 2013, and it was written by Dr. Nasir Gami. If science is defined as some kind of systematic study of observed experience applied to hypotheses or theories, and then confirmation or refutation of those hypotheses or theories, followed by new hypotheses or theories that are further tested and refined by new observations, if this is the core of any scientific inquiry, I think that no objective observer can attribute the history of DSM-3, 4, and 5 to anything that approximates this process. So basically, they said all of that to say that science is supposed to be based on observed experiences that are applied to hypotheses or theories, and basically that is not at all
all what they're doing. They're not making observations and coming up with hypotheses and theories based on their observations, their studies, whatever. No, that's not what they're doing. So now we're going on to a spirited exchange about the biology of mental disorders and DSM-5, and this is by Dr. James L. Knoll IV. The spirited exchanges between doctors Ronald Pies and Nasir Gami is, I contend, good for the field. Rather than avoid the sensitive or uncertain issues, both psychiatrists turn to face them with their own thought-provoking styles and piercing insight. Would that we had more such collegial exchanges in psychiatry. Dr. Pies and Gamey model for us how to abandon our defensiveness in an objective, respectful, and passionate discourse. As Nobel laureate Eric Candle points out, our field is highly complex, quite young, and our understanding of the biology of mental disorders has been slow in coming, but it is in fact slowly progressing. The question of how long it will take to gain a more precise understanding of the underpinnings of mental illness has no definite answer. Or as Dr. Theodore Perlman has stated, quote, is any psychiatrist's guess, end quote. So here they're admitting that psychiatry is a very new field of study and that it is progressing progressing, but it's progressing pretty slowly. And the question they keep asking themselves is how long it will take to gain a more precise understanding of mental illness. And they don't know how long it's going to take them to actually understand it accurately. They're admitting here that they don't have a very good understanding of what causes these mental disorders. And if you don't really know what's causing it, how are you claiming to treat it? You might be treating certain symptoms, but you're not actually treating the issue, the underlying cause cause. The article continues, and so in this spirit of continued scholarly dialogue, I offer a well-reasoned, trenchant response to Dr. Gamey by Dr. Perlman, which can be found at the end of Dr. Gamey's essay. Dr. Ron Pies makes many insightful comments in the accompanying analysis. My view about why DSM revisions have been unscientific is based on concepts of science that are in agreement with much of what he describes. If science is defined as some kind of systematic study of observed experience applied to hypotheses or theories and then confirmation or refutation of those hypotheses or theories followed by new hypotheses or theories that are further tested and refined by new observations. If this is the core of any scientific inquiry, I think that no objective observer can attribute the history of DSM 3, 4, and 5 to anything that approximates this process. Let's review this history. So well documented now by historian Hannah Decker with archival, often unpublished evidence for DSM-3. In the 1970s, scientific studies that meet the above definitions were collected mainly by researchers centered at the Washington University of St. Louis, and about two dozen diagnoses were found to be definable based on such empirical evidence. These were published a few times, lastly in 1978, as the research diagnostic criteria. Within two years, Robert Spitzer had taken those scientifically-based diagnoses as the basis for DSM-3, but through an immense amount of political wheeling and dealing documented in painful detail by Decker, he produces 292 diagnoses. Obviously, in two years, a huge amount of scientific research did not suddenly identify 270 new diagnoses. Fourteen years later, with the DSM-4, 365 diagnoses were produced, but the original 270 were little changed. Now, about 20 years later, we still have almost 400 diagnoses with little change in the original 292 from the Groundhog year of 1980. How were these other 200 to 300 diagnoses 
developed? Was it through a scientific process? As so well documented by Decker and historian Edward Shorter and others who observed the process, like Michael Allen Taylor, these other diagnoses were based almost entirely on the opinions and beliefs of leaders and interest groups in the psychiatric profession. Why do we have about 10 personality disorders? Because psychoanalysts believe in those ideas. Were those ideas tested with observational studies and then revised based on confirmations and refutations of their content? Not before 1980 and hardly since. As an example, Taylor describes a DSM-4 conference on personality where a huge amount of scientific research was presented on personality traits. And then, the DSM-4 leader stated clearly that they would ignore that scientific evidence and would hardly change the DSM-3 personality disorder definitions at all. 20 years later, after literally thousands more studies with some of the best possible scientific evidence possible in experimental psychology, the DSM-5 task force had no choice but to admit the need to add personality dimensions to the nosology. It got all the way to the APA Board of Trustees and within weeks of publication was simply rejected. The original DSM-3 personality disorders were almost completely based on psychoanalytic opinion with hardly any any scientific validity literature to support them as documented well by Hannah in her archival research. In the intervening 30 years, a number of scientific validity studies using the classic nosology validators of phenomenology, course genetics, and biological markers have invalidated most DSM-4 personality disorders. In other words, they have been falsified scientifically. In fact, this was the scientific conclusion of the personality disorder research summary provided for DSM-4. DSM-5 by the world's most prominent personality researchers, and yet DSM personality disorders have remained little changed in DSM-5 by fiat. This is another proof of being unscientific. The DSM nosology refuses to accept the falsification of its cherished beliefs. This is the problem. It's not complicated and philosophically difficult. If you have an opinion and nothing else, it's not science. If you refuse to change your opinions, it's not science. Most of DSM DSM has been based on opinion, and our profession has refused to change most of that opinion for two generations. How can anyone imagine that any profession would ever experience progress, much less scientific progress, if it refuses to change its opinions themselves based on nothing but prior opinion? We are much more ignorant than Hippocrates over two millennia ago. He knew that opinion breeds ignorance, while science is the father of knowledge. We mistake our opinions for science. Dr. Pais Pisa's attempt to distinguish the term scientific and validity is mistaken when applied to DSM. I think partly because he uses the word valid in both English and scientific usage, which is not the same. Validity, when applied to nosology, means that a diagnosis is true. It exists. It is not wrong. Cancer is valid. Drapetomania is not. This is different from the English usage. When Dr. Pies says in his footnote that the steady state theory of the universe was invalidated by the Big Bang theory. In the latter example, physicists were testing hypotheses by evidence and changing their theories based on those experimental results. That's science. In the DSM process, psychiatric leaders enforce their opinions and then they refuse to change them at all based on any experimental research. That's not science. There are some cases, much less common, where DSM changes have been based on scientific evidence. So my claim here is not absolute, but it does reflect the predominant approach in DSM changes for the fourth revision almost entirely and for the third and fifth revisions mostly. Worse, the leader
remainder of DSM-4 is explicit that science is low in priority and should not be valued as the main method of revising diagnoses. Instead, he says we should base revisions mainly on pragmatism, meaning what DSM leaders think is good for everyone else. Here's a direct quote. It seems clear to me that pragmatic concerns for patients' welfare always trump science, especially since the science underpinning psychiatric diagnosis is so thin and subject to alternative interpretations, end quote. As usual, the disciples are far inferior to the master. Freud knew better when he wrote in Future of an Illusion, quote, no, our science is no illusion, but an illusion it would be to suppose that what science cannot give us, we can get elsewhere, end quote. Nosological validity means applying scientific methods of hypothesis and experiment in most importantly changing theories and hypotheses based on observations and experiments. This is not how the original 292 DSM-3 diagnoses came about, and it is certainly not how they've been handled for the last three decades. That's why science and nosological validity, based on the five validators described by Dr. Pies, are synonymous in the field of psychiatry diagnosis. There's no way to be scientific unless you examine the evidence which comes from those five areas. That's nosological validity. That's science. The issue is not whether scientific ideas are later invalidated. Here, Dr. Pies is using the word in its English meaning, not in its technical meaning in the science of nosology. Validity in nosology means studies that use the five validators or pathology. That is different from the use of the term in the general English meaning that something is tested and confirmed based on experiment. The kind of experiment varies from science to science. In histology, validity is based on microscopes. In astrophysics, telescopes. In psychiatric diagnosis, the five validators. The use of the word invalidated is English and different from the term validity in nosology. If you divide the two dozen somewhat validated psychiatric diagnoses by the 400 or so claimed by DSM-5, we can precisely state that DSM-5 is about 97% unscientific. We need to change the attitude of two generations in our profession, paying lip service to science and then ignoring it. Okay, so that was the part of the article that spoke of how unscientific the DSM is, and now there's a second part of the article that is in defense of DSM, and I want to get into that, but I think you should really think about the arguments that were made in the first half of the article. They are basically going back to exactly what I said, which is that these things are not based on science. They're based on opinions, and it looks like a lot of psychiatry is based on the opinions of some old psychoanalysts, and psychoanalysis is basically Freudian psychology, so it's based on all those theories that Freud had, and I'm not against it necessarily, but I do think that we need to make sure we are basing these diagnoses and treatments on actual science, because ultimately, in medicine, they're supposed to be this oath where they do no harm, right? And if they are just basing things on opinion and not science, I think the chances that they would do harm, the chances are much greater than if it was just purely based on science. I can also see how everybody is not the same, and how even if there is a scientific basis, the treatment or the diagnosis might not fit every single person as neatly as we would like it to. So I see how we would need some kind of wiggle room. We would need doctor's opinion to come in at some point, but I don't 
think the entire field should be based on opinion. That's what I'm saying. So now I want to get into this second part of the article where they are speaking in defense of the DSM. So let's see what kinds of arguments they can make there. In defense of DSM, as an elder psychiatrist practicing before and after DSM-3 became the standard diagnostic handbook for psychiatrists in the 1980s, I take issue with Dr. Gamey's position that DSM lacks scientific credibility. Dr. Gamey wants psychiatry to confine its knowledge to diagnosing and treating only some dozen of the 265 DSM-listed disorders, the conditions which he believes are the only true diagnosable psychiatric diseases. The rest, Dr. Gamey asserts, are essentially psychogenic entities formulated through self-deception and agreed upon falsehoods by members of the DSM task forces in order to seemingly promote reliability but lacking true validity. I believe that far from deviating from scientific truth, the task forces of DSM were spurred forward seeking a truthful classification of psychiatric illnesses for sound research and treatment purposes. Various criteria influenced its authenticity. Firstly, the DSM represented an atheoretical classification of mental disorders and avoided non-credible speculation as to causation of psychiatric illness. Nowhere in the manual does the term disease associated with the functional psychiatric disorder appear, which would erroneously imply proven structural brain pathology. Furthermore, in accordance with the concept of true illness, each diagnosis required a level of malfunction causing clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. Before the advent of DSM-3, clinical psychiatry was bogged down by unproductive emphasis and debate on what appeared biological and genetic versus psychological reactions to adverse environmental or personality factors. Hence, as Dr. Gamey has inferred, Sir Martin Roth passed Doyen of British psychiatry and knighted by Queen Elizabeth for his services to British psychiatry, asserted that endogenous depression phased in DSM-3 into the nomenclature of major depression was exclusively a biological disease. Reactive depression, termed neurotic depression by Roth, was considered exclusively psychogenic in origin and to be managed with psychotherapy alone. The problem with the Roth concept that endogenous depression is a structural brain disease is that the argument fails to mandate any proof of brain pathology. Instead, there is speculation about the existence of innate brain molecular dysfunction, which science thus far has failed to elucidate. Despite the unquestionable efficacy of antidepressants and ECT with endogenous depression, its pathology remains largely unknown. Symptom relief with SSRI and SNRI drugs or ECT does not directly imply an innate deficiency of brain amines, much as aspirin relieving fever in cases of strep throat does not imply deficiency of innate anti-fever substances in the body. How long psychiatry will take to discover the structural brain pathology of severe depressive illness like bacteriology concerning the ideology of strep throat discovered centuries gone by is any psychiatrist's guess. In the meantime, while we wait for discovery of brain molecular pathology underlying endogenous depression, the DSM classification of depressive disorders on a continuum of diminishing severity, namely from major to dysthymia, and both treatable with integrated biological and psychological treatment, remains psychiatry's closest alignment to credible scientific methodology and towards the ongoing search for the whole truth. Now that was from Dr. Theodore Perlman from Irvine, California. Even though the doctor in the second half of the article was trying to argue in defense 
sense of the DSM, I still think he was kind of proving the point of the original doctor that these things are not based in science. But I think he was just trying to say, even though they're not based on science, as we learn more and we figure out why people have these depressive situations, then we'll have a better understanding and it won't necessarily discount the effectiveness of the drugs. But he's also pointing out that these drugs seem to be addressing some kind of chemical imbalance in the brain when we have not proven that there is a chemical imbalance in the brain. He's trying to say, okay, it's true. It may not be based in science, but it works. How do we know it's not just working based on the placebo effect? Or how do we know it's actually working? I think if it's not based on science, we really have to question it, especially when we hold the scientific method up as the way we do science, as the way we actually figure things out. But then when it comes to these psychiatric diseases, we want to just stray away from that. And it's almost like, okay, now for this field of medicine, it's acceptable for us to just proceed based on faith or proceed based on our beliefs. But if people who believe in spirituality or religion, whatever, try to do that and say they're going to heal somebody based on their beliefs and all of that, we're seen as crackpots or, you know, like we are doing quackery. I don't understand why psychiatry is not called quackery when it is proven and admitted even by psychiatrists that their methods are not based in science. Honestly, I'm illuminating this because I want people to see things for what they are and see that it's not like traditional medicine has everything on lock. They don't understand everything. So it's not like you can just blindly put your trust in traditional medicine and know that they are following the scientific method all the time. They are not. And if you are open to exploring things like herbalism, you might see that there are some herbs that may even be more effective, more helpful to you in dealing with certain ailments. I'm not a doctor, so I'm not claiming that I have the ability to diagnose you with anything or treat you for anything, but I think that we each as individuals need to take responsibility for our own health and we need to make sure that we are fully understanding what's going on with us before we allow somebody else to treat whatever they think is wrong with us. We need to take charge of our own health. We need to do our own research. And research is basically just reading or, you know, listening to other people. And just because you read something doesn't mean it's true. Just because somebody says something doesn't mean it's true. You want to gather as much information as possible and proceed accordingly. Make the best decisions you can with the information you have. And that's why you want to get as much information as possible. I hope I didn't upset you too much. But thank you very much for taking the time to listen to Path of a Green Witch podcast. And please be very careful if you are somebody who's struggling with mental health and you decide to go and get treatment, just know that some of those drugs are actually dangerous. Talk therapy is great and it might be helpful. I don't see any major drawbacks there, but if you're putting chemicals in your body that are poorly understood and not backed up by the scientific method, I think you want to be really careful with that. Thank you so much for listening and I truly wish you the best. If you're going through bad times, please know that it doesn't last forever. You can get through it. You can make things better. Sometimes you need a little help. You need some support. And if there's anything you think I can do to help you, please reach out. I wish you the best. Thanks for listening.